Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Rosanna Amaka on her debut novel, The Book of Echoes. Rosanna Amaka was born to African and Caribbean parents. She began writing her debut novel, The Book of Echoes, 20 years ago to give voice to the Brixton community in which she grew up. Her community was fast disappearing as a result of gentrification, emigration back to the Caribbean and Africa, or simply with the passing away of the older generation. Its depiction of the unimaginable pain, redeemed by love and hope, was also inspired by a wish to understand the impact of history on present-day lives. Rosanna, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. So how would you describe the Book of Echoes, first of all? My child. <laughs> um, it's it's not way... a child now, it's an adult. <laughs> it still feels like my baby, to be honest with you. It feels like I'm letting it go on its um, first day at school, really, although it's been at school maybe for two weeks now. So the book has an omniscient narrator but an unusual one tell us about the narrator of this story it's narrated by an enslaved african woman that died over 200 years ago in the um, west indies docks when she was alive in nigeria before she was captured she had a child on her back and um just before she was going to be ch- captured she threw her child into a shrine in order to save the child from the same fate as hers so then it comes forward to um she lands in the west indies docks and she has a second child and um that second child is taken away from her and um she dies and she basically roams the earth trying to find her lost children the story is then split into into to begin with two strands um yes. one set both set in the in the early 1980s one in in Brixton and the other in Nigeria yeah uh, Michael the character that is is growing up in Brixton tell us who he is first of all Michael is a 16 year old um boy who it's him his mum and his sister in the um household and it's basically what happens to his life once his mother is is murdered and taken away from him and he struggled to survive and this is right at the start so it's not giving anything away his his Mm -hmm. his mother is is brutally murdered yeah Um, tell us something more about what happens so she 
unfortunately is is killed and he's left with the pieces and he has to figure out a way of one surviving for himself and two surviving for his sister and what's left behind with her death is you know he's got to financial figure out financial ways of supporting them but this is all happening during the um brixton riots as well yeah so this is 1981 and yeah anybody who's old enough to remember that as i am will um Mm-hmm. remember what was going on but but for anyone else talk about what what was Brixton like in 1981 and what led up to the events that happened so um I think those that are old enough know about the sus, sus lords so there was a, a period um in in Brixton where there was a lot of stop and searches in a very very short space of time so a lot of young men were um stopped and searched and it created a very 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 um very tense environment because of that environment it, it triggered off the the riots and there's also i mean almost an aside at the very very start of the book michael spends the night in a cell and and yeah. he basically the witnesses a or is aware um, of a death in custody which obviously yeah. was something that was going on a lot yeah so um in the 80s for the, there was a lot of young men that did die in custody and um in the story it depicts this it, michael has um a, a local friend that he gets arrested with and um he ends up in 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 a cell but he overhears the other he's friend being um, murdered but well his friend being killed by the police he has no evidence he wasn't a witness but he suspects he knows what went on over to nigeria the same time mm-hmm. period and we're we're introduced to ngozi yeah um, and she is described by other characters as um osu what what, what does that mean so basically, um, Osu means that if you go back to when the enslaved African woman was taken from Africa, now when she took her child off of her um, back, she threw the child into a shrine. So when she threw the child into a shrine, that child basically became protected by the gods or, or of that time. So she became that line became untouchable. Untouchable in terms of a sort of caste system. Yes, in in terms of people not wanting to go near them because they are protected by the gods. For her, it means that, um, particularly in terms of marriage, that pe- because they she has this hanging over her head, that people don't want to marry her, and that she's ostracised to certain not ostracised to a certain degree, but. She is, for instance, some of the children make fun of her and don't want to come, you know, make fun of that that she's Osu. And um, it makes her life difficult. So the village that she's growing up in is is the village that the narrator was snatched from mm-hmm. 200 years or so previously. Mm-hmm. Um, what is that place like at the time of the of the novel in 1981? Well, the the village, which is a made-up village, um, Bowie, it's a Catholic village. It's full of um, hierarchy systems, like many villages. You have the rich, you have the poor, and you have the very, very poor. (laughs) And she's part of the very poor. And the the bigger city that she moves to, so she's basically going to move to as a as a a maid of a of a sort of, yeah. of a household. So, yeah. So her mother is um, basically because they are very poor. Her mother has no options left to her but to send 
Ngozi off to work as a maid in order for her to get a better education and hopefully a better life. And that's obviously not, we won't give away too much about what happened, but Mm -hmm. that is not how things transpire. And so I want to talk about the sort of central idea behind the book of that, you know, how trauma is basically passed down through the generations. Okay, so um, for instance, if we go back to um, Michael and his life and some of the reasons why his mother is is murdered, that is involved in that. If we look at Michael, some of the legacies that he's left with, some of the internalization of um, racism, the way he views himself in the world, that is all handed down through, that's a legacy of slavery, yeah. I mentioned at the beginning that you've been, you know, this book was conceived 20 years ago. Yeah. Let's talk about how it came about then and the sort of of writing of it over those years. Yeah. So I was working in Scotland over 20 years ago and I didn't have a TV. So I thought to myself, okay, well, this is a, a great opportunity. And at the time I had a lot of ideas milling around in my head. So I sat down and I thought, okay, I'm going to write this this novel. And I was also homesick. So I started to write the novel. And the first story that came out was Michael. Then after him, then Ngozi. But while I was writing those stories, a voice started to come forward saying, actually, I want to tell this story. So that's when the narrator also came forward as well. And so how then does it take 20 years? Well, I I actually finished the first draft in six months. But what happened is that after the six months, I sent it out and obviously got a whole load of rejections. And I thought, okay, let me just rewrite and re-edit. So I rewrote and re-edit, sent it out again, got a whole load of rejections, left it alone for a little while, tried again sent it out, got a whole load of rejections. And finally, we got to to 2017. And I thought to myself, okay, I've, you know, I'm going to do it one last time. And I sent it out and I got a whole load of rejections again. So I thought, okay, um, it's not going to happen for me, the traditional route. I'm going to go down the self-publishing route. So I got the documents together. And in the process of getting the document together, I came across a letter from 20 years ago, which said, um, you know, um, at the bottom of it, um, keep in touch. So I thought to myself, should I? Should I not? So I thought, well, what do I really have to lose? So I phoned up, obviously changed the code and left a message on the answer machine. And they got back to me and said said to me, what are you talking about? So I said, "Um, well, you know, you sent me this letter 20 years ago and you said I should keep in touch. So they said, oh, send me a copy of the letter. So I said, "Okay, I'll send you a copy of the letter. And meanwhile, here's three chapters as well. So I sent it off to them and not. And then I think a few I didn't hear from them for about three months. And I thought, OK, well, it's just another rejection. And I was sat down to actually just get the book ready to go down the, to just post it on for self-publishing. And an email came in saying, um, we've just read these three chapters. Do you have a synopsis, etc.?" And sent it off to them and they helped find a agent for me and the agent helped find Doubleday. So what do you think had changed? Because clearly the book hadn't changed. In terms of the, well, obviously over 20 years when you're rewriting, you're re-editing, I like to think that maybe my writing had got better. But also I think 
it was the right time as well because I think the industry was changing and maybe some doors were opening as well. So it took that long for the the publishing industry to. I mean, I mean, it still has a long way to go, obviously, but mm-hmm. you know, but to start actually welcoming what they would describe as other voices, I guess, into, I, into publishing. I think it's a combination. I think that you know, hopefully, my writing got better, but also it hit a time when the doors were opening. And so, obviously, over that period of time, mm-hmm. I mean, that's twenty years of you yeah. know from the the conception of the book. Mm-hmm. to it being published the book set in 1981 as well which is further in the past yeah brixton the place that you know part of the book is set has changed beyond recognition in that time people say beyond recognition uh, it's changed in terms of when you walk down the streets that some houses are got nicer paint on it but there's still the same buildings but the actual people have changed yes yeah, well, so, and certainly the the pictures in the uh, in the estate agents' windows and, and things have, um, mm-hmm. well, have the got higher up. higher figures on them. <laughs> um, so let's yeah. let's talk about that. You know, the idea that you're you know when you conceived this book twenty years ago, you wanted to you wanted to document a community, which uh, I guess presumably at, at that time you wouldn't necessarily have conceived that that community would be under under threat in the in the no. way that it has become. No, not at all. I, I think when I, as I said, when I started to write it, I was homesick. So I, and also I was reading books at the time that I didn't feel. I mean, there, there were obviously maybe other books around, but the ones that I was reading just didn't seem to reflect the people that I knew. So I wanted to um, write something about their resilience. But um, during that process, what was happening is, as you said, um, the you know people were either moving out and going back to the Caribbean, immigrating, or passing away, and and the community was changing. There's still still a community there, but not like it, not to the extent it was before. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
I've just come back. My wife's an, uh, an American, and I've just been visiting my mother-in-law in um, who lives in South Carolina. We went to Charleston, beautiful mm-hmm. old rich town built entirely on the legacy of slavery and you know we visited places while we were there museums and you know houses that were you know once owned by large slave owners yeah but you know everywhere is everywhere is doing something to deal with that legacy you know in their own way yeah it's acknowledged and you know i mean america is obviously a society riven by the race issue but it's acknowledged it's something Mm -hmm. that you'll see discussions about on television and then you know i come back and then i don't know stormzy or dawn butler or whoever will go on tv and mention that perhaps maybe possibly britain is a is a society that's a little bit racist and Mm -hmm. there is outrage this is not something that people are willing are willing to talk about what do you make of that well, I'm obviously I'm I'm black, and if you if you or members of your family are, are going to be subject and and feel it, then obviously <laughs> you're not going to like it. But it's it's also difficult talking to, you know, you talk to some people, and it's 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 like a blank stare or deaf ears. It doesn't matter what you say; they're not going to hear what you. You know, sometimes it's been like being locked in a box. You're talking, but you're not being heard. <laughs> So there's that aspect of it. But then there is also the people that generally do want to hear and do want to learn. And I have come across those people. They're they're not as many as there should be, but they are there. Well, there was a, I mean, a poll somewhere I saw only a week ago or so that was said something like, you know, 30% of the population think the empire was a force for good or something. Yeah. Britain, it certainly seems, needs to have some sort of acknowledgement of its yeah. of of its legacy in the world before we can, you know some sort of reckoning just to admit our part yeah. in in that and it just it it just never seems to happen but it's also people also not understanding their own history they say it's a force for good but they're thinking as as those that were beneficiaries of that and a lot of white people were but there were a lot of white people that that in terms of australia that were sent out so, so were they do you do you understand yeah it's a, sometimes i think white people have a false idea of their own history as well <laughs> <laughs> what more do you think needs to be done to just to because as i said I, I can't really see us moving on until we've you know just confronted that that i think question. we need to have conversations and we need to listen we, we, you know, I'm hoping that the book of echoes. I, as I said, I think I think it's a good book for book clubs, and I hope it will open up conversations that people can have. Can we talk about what other writing was perhaps an influence on this, on your work? Yeah. Um, in terms of the actual uh, narrative, the enslaved um, woman's narrative, um, the um, abolitionist Olado Equiano, you know, had a, quite a bit of influence in in trying to understand what it was like in in those times and and what and her journey as well. In terms of my writing influences as I was growing up, there's been so many, but I'll just name a few people like Jay California Cooper, James Baldwin, um, George Eliot, um, the list goes on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And to finish off, can I perhaps get you to read us a little bit of the Book of Echoes? Yes. um, Okay. 
So this is a section that is right at the beginning of the book. And um, it's the enslaved African woman explaining what's happened to her. 200 years, Wind and I have roamed. 200 years we have waited by these docks. And in that time, we have seen many changes, watched many beginnings. I am their beginning, the womb whence they came. It was not out of choice that my children were separated. Not out of choice, I was joined with their fathers. Uzo, my firstborn, was a round and healthy baby who giggled when I tickled him under his chin. Eze, my husband, was proud. We were happy in our small village, surrounded by the lush green bush, which shaded us from the African sun. We woke to the sound of the cockerel, and each morning I rose from the mat where we lay to clang my pot on top of an open fire and fetch water from the stream as Uzo slept peacefully on my back. Eze, my husband, was a kind man who I grew to love. I was 16, he much older. I remember the day he came to carry wine and I became his wife. That day we heard the Oja flute in the distance and it soared like an excited bird in flight before being joined by the rhythm of the Ogon and the beating of drums drawing nearer. My mother fretted, but my friends poked their heads out of the hut, eager to see what was happening, and reported back happily on their first impressions of Eze and his family. I sat while my aunts added my final adornments. I could hear so much fanfare outside, my spirit soared, and when some time later I finally handed Eze the cup to drink from, he took it in such a gentle manner that I was happy with my parents' choice. I thought, well, I thought many things back then. My future was young with fresh virgin cheeks. I thought I would grow old. I thought our lives would be entwined forever. That I would wake each morning to Eze's smile and the warmth of our baby between us. That I would rise each morning to clang my pot on top of the open fire, stir the food to feed my husband and send him on on his way to labor in the far fields. As he would say, with my sweet cooking wrapped in banana leaves, securely placed in the pouch by his side. I thought I would die in our small village, surrounded by the green bush, not far from my father's land, and the people who loved me. I could not see into the future, nor could I have imagined what it held. I did not know how the disease of others could infect my life. It killed me. I was 25. Wind and I have never known that kind of happiness. There was never enough time, or laughter, or peace, or words. You see, at first he could not speak my language, nor I his. For although his skin was black like mine, he came from their land. But we held on, Wind and I. From the moment we locked eyes, there was comfort in his gaze, a strength I needed that day as I walked unsteadily onto that ungodly ship with its huge wooden spears that rose into the heavens and a layers of white cloth at its feet. My back was in pain from the weight of the shackles at my neck and wrists. As I prayed for my son Uzor, I had left in a shrine. I looked up, and there was Wynne, scaling down the pole. His face seemed strange among their ghostly ones. I wondered how and why he could betray us so. Then he looked up, right at me, and our eyes met, and he willed me on, willed me to fight. I could not look away. He held my gaze as I descended into that hell, giving me strength. I never let go. That was the last day I ever saw Africa while alive. 
So I've been talking to Rosanna Amarco. We've been talking about her debut novel, The Book of Echoes, which is out now in the UK from Doubleday. Rosanna, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.